Usually when I'm preparing an episode of the podcast, I have some cohesive theme that ties it together. But the theme for this episode is, well, it's a little loose. Essentially, it's things that I've seen that are interesting and I really want to talk about them, but I just couldn't find a way to work them into an episode. So essentially, this episode is the junk drawer of my observations. Some recent, some not so much, but all of them proof that if you go outside and you follow your curiosity, you just might be amazed at what you learn. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. Part of the reason I do what I do is that I'm naturally curious about nature. When I see something, whether it's an insect or an animal or an interesting plant, I want to know more. Are you going to eye naturalist that is one of the most common phrases my children use when we're out poking around in the woods and I pull out my phone to take a picture. Often I end up learning something amazing and cool about something that doesn't necessarily look like it would be amazing or cool. And I have a knack for retaining that information. My wife and kids can tell you that I am no good at math, but give me a random weird fact about some insect and it sticks in my brain forever. So when we first moved to the current location of Dispatches HQ here in Virginia, one of the first things I noticed were these towers of mud in the ditch in front of the house. There were two or three of them, each about three inches tall with a perfect quarter-sized hole in the middle. I described it to my dad, who immediately said, oh, those are crayfish chimneys. Crayfish chimneys? Crayfish, or crawdads, or crawfish, or mud bugs, depending on where you live, are crustaceans, and one that I've always associated with bodies of water. Growing up, I used to catch crayfish in the lakes of northern Wisconsin on family vacations, finding them under rocks, or spotting them on the sandy bottom with a flashlight at night when they came out to feed. And, as I've mentioned before, Dispatch's HQ has no permanent bodies of water. But sure enough, my dad was right. Not that I ever doubted him. Not too long ago, I even got one on video with my game camera. Turns out, crayfish will burrow down to the groundwater. More on that in a minute. But first, let's look at what crayfish are. Crayfish are freshwater crustaceans. They look like miniature lobsters, and lobsters and crayfish are related. But crayfish are generally much smaller, averaging between 3 and 7 inches. However, the largest crayfish species in the world, the Tasmanian giant freshwater crayfish, can grow to be almost a foot and a half long and weigh up to 11 pounds. Leave it to Australia. Worldwide, there's about 500 different species of crayfish, and the southeastern United States boasts the greatest diversity of crayfish species in the world, with about 330 different species. Now, like their lobster cousins and other decapod crustaceans, like prawns, crayfish have a hard exoskeleton, which they shed as they grow. Their bodies are made up of 19 segments grouped into two main body parts, the cephalothorax and the abdomen. The cephalothorax is basically the joined head and thorax, just like spiders. The head has a sharp snout, and they have compound eyes on movable stalks along with sensory antenna, a long pair and two shorter pair. Also on the cephalothorax are four pairs of walking legs that each end in small pinchers and a pair of large claws that you do not want to get pinched by. 
Another pair of appendages under the head pick up food and deliver it to the mouth. The segmented portion that most of us think of as the crayfish's tail is actually the abdomen. On the abdomen, there are smaller legs called swimmerettes, used mostly for swimming and circulating water for respiration. Crayfish breathe through feather-like gills. As long as these gills stay wet, the crayfish can absorb oxygen from the air and doesn't need to be totally submerged. Now, this is going to be important when we talk about those chimneys. The abdomen ends in a fan-like tail. When threatened, the crayfish swims backwards very quickly by rapidly curling and uncurling their abdomen. Imagine swimming backwards by doing crunches. Crayfish can be found under rocks and logs in almost any body of water, from brooks, streams, and rivers to ponds, lakes, swamps, and ditches. Most crayfish species don't tolerate polluted water very well, so they can be considered an indicator species. Their presence means that the water quality is fairly good. In fact, not only do scientists monitor crayfish in the wild to study pollutants, there's a brewery in the Czech Republic that uses crayfish to monitor the purity of the water they use for their beer. These crayfish are outfitted with sensors to detect any changes in their body or pulse activity. They're kept in a tank that's fed from the same local natural water source used in the brewing. If changes are detected in the pulses of three or more of the crayfish, employees know that there's been a change in the water quality. Crayfish are omnivores and most active at night, feeding largely on snails, insect larvae, worms, and tadpoles. They'll also eat vegetation and decomposing plant and animal matter. Crayfish mate in the autumn and lay eggs in the spring. The eggs are attached to the female's abdomen, and they hatch in five to eight weeks. The larvae remain on the mother for several weeks, and depending on the species, sexual maturity can be reached in just a few months, or it might take several years. In fact, some species of crayfish can live up to 20 years. Okay, back to those crayfish chimneys. Crayfish chimneys are little mud towers, like I said, about two to three inches tall with a quarter-size hole in the middle. They can be found in ditches, fields, or other damp places. Now, underneath that chimney is a crayfish living in a burrow. The tunnels can extend down three feet or more, basically until it hits the groundwater. Sometimes it's a single burrow going straight down, but more often there's a main tunnel with a couple of side tunnels, each with a room at the end. These tunnels are normally full of water. Usually there's one adult crayfish per burrow, but there may be both a male and a female. After eggs are laid, the male might stay near the entrance and the female deeper down. Crayfish living in burrows like these will emerge at night to hunt for slugs, worms, or other invertebrates near the chimney. So how do they make these chimneys? They actually use their legs and mouth parts to dig up mud and make it into a small ball called a pellet. Each pellet is then taken to the surface. The crayfish will move through the tunnels, kind of looking like a football player carrying a football, and places that pellet on top of the existing chimney. The next pellet is set beside the first, and this keeps going like a bricklayer building a wall with layers of bricks. The chimney is constructed out of many, many pellets of mud. During dry periods, the crayfish may plug the opening with mud to help retain the moisture in the burrow. This is especially true of horizontal burrows closer to the surface, since the crayfish can't just move deeper to remain wet. When the water table drops in more vertical burrows, the crayfish just moves deeper. Incidentally, this is the same response they have to cold weather. They move down to where the water is warmer. Now, there are a couple of theories about why crayfish build chimneys in the first place. 
One is that by building a chimney, the crayfish never actually has to leave the burrow, which keeps it more protected from predators. Another is that the water in a crayfish burrow may eventually become low in oxygen. The chimney helps increase airflow in the tunnels and allows more oxygen to be absorbed into the water. Now, when the oxygen level in the water is low, the crayfish will position itself just above the water, keeping its gills wet, but allowing it to absorb more oxygen from the air. Likewise, when crayfish living in burrows lay eggs, they need to monitor the water oxygen levels for the sake of the young. As long as the oxygen levels in the burrow water are high, the adult keeps the eggs underwater. If the oxygen in the water drops, the mother crayfish will keep the eggs moist, but get them out of the water, allowing them to also absorb more oxygen from the air. Since there's a limited amount of food available in the burrow, once they hatch, the young crayfish will consume any unhatched eggs and the carcasses of any dead siblings. They've also been known to eat each other to survive. Brutal. But when rains come and they're old enough, they leave the burrow and disperse. Now, right after I originally finished writing this episode, but before recording it, of course, I saw a post on social media about something called a crayfish worm. Crayfish worms are tiny worms that spend their entire life from egg to adult living on a crayfish. It's a symbiotic relationship. The worm cleans harmful scum off the crayfish, which increases the crayfish's growth rate and survival. In return, the worm gets nutrients and a place to live. Now, more recently on a weekend trip to West Virginia, we were poking around under some rocks and logs, and I found a couple of interesting things. The first was a dusky salamander. Salamanders are relatively elusive, so I'm always excited to find one. Only about four inches long, this reddish-brown salamander was hiding under a rock, which is not unusual. Like all salamanders, they need to stay moist and are often found under leaves, rocks, or logs, and often near water or in damp areas. They may also enter burrows for protection. Since their home ranges are limited to about 30 square feet, these types of microhabitats are extremely important. Habitat loss or degradation and pollution from development and agriculture can quickly devastate local populations. Now, dusky salamanders are a species of lungless salamanders, absorbing oxygen through the skin and membranous tissues in its mouth and throat, another reason why they need to stay moist. Diet-wise, salamanders are generalist, but up to 85% of their diet is terrestrial invertebrates like spiders, mites, flies, ants, beetles, centipedes, moths, mayflies, snails, slugs, and earthworms. A lot of things will also eat the salamander, including bigger salamanders and crayfish, along with birds, snakes, and small mammals. Now, they're able to lose their tail and eventually regrow it when threatened by a predator, but they lack any sort of chemical defense like some other amphibians. Breeding happens in the spring or fall and includes elaborate courtship rituals. Females normally deposit between 10 and 30 eggs under logs, moss, or rocks, someplace where the soil is saturated with water. Females will stay with their eggs for two and a half to three months to protect them from predators and drying out. Larvae are aquatic and only about half an inch long when they hatch. This aquatic phase can last anywhere from 7 to 16 months, after which they're semi-terrestrial. Dusky salamanders attain sexual maturity at about the age of 3 or 4 and can live up to 10 or 15 years. 
Now, another critter that we found under rocks and logs in West Virginia was a snail-eating beetle. Specific information on this small beetle was surprisingly sparse. All my searching turned up only three main facts about them. First, as their name suggests, they primarily prey on snails. They have a thin head that allows them to reach further into the shell of their prey. Second, they're flightless. And third, they're a species of ground beetle. Now, despite a lack of information on this specific beetle, I did learn that ground beetles, on the whole, are pretty darn interesting. There's about 2,000 species of ground beetle in North America. Body shapes and color vary somewhat, but most are shiny black or metallic and have ridged wing covers. In some species, like the snail-eating beetle, the wing covers are fused, rendering them flightless. Most species are carnivorous and actively hunt for any invertebrate they can overpower. A lot of them are pretty amazing. Tiger beetles can run at speeds of over five and a half miles an hour, which doesn't sound like much, but in relation to their body length, that makes them one of the fastest land animals on the planet. Another species of ground beetle is a specialized predator of the cyanide-producing millipedes I talked about a couple episodes ago. This beetle has the ability to counter the hydrogen cyanide that makes these millipedes poisonous to most other predators. And when it comes to chemical defenses, ground beetles have quite a few of their own. Many species of ground beetle have well-developed glands in the lower back of the abdomen that produce noxious or caustic secretions to deter would-be predators. One group of ground beetles can mechanically squirt their secretions not only a considerable distance, but with a high degree of accuracy. And then there are the bombardier beetles. These beetles mix their secretions with volatile compounds, which are then ejected by a small combustion, producing both a loud popping sound and a cloud of hot, acrid gas that can injure small animals like shrews and is liable to kill invertebrate predators outright. This ability has apparently evolved twice in the flanged bombardier beetles, which are some of the most ancient ground beetles, and again later on in the typical bombardier beetles, which are part of a more modern lineage. Because they're predators and eat many pest species of insects, they're generally considered to be beneficial. The ground beetles known as caterpillar hunters are known for devouring large quantities of their prey, including various fuzzy caterpillars that, because of the irritating nature of these hairs, are often avoided by other insectivores. What's more, caterpillar hunters may offer a natural biological control for invasive species like the gypsy moth and maybe the spotted lanternfly. Now, I've seen crayfish and salamanders and beetles before, maybe not the specific species of snail-eating beetle, but ground beetles in general. But last week, I came across something that I had never seen or even heard of before. It was actually the inspiration for this junk drawer episode. After returning from our weekend in West Virginia, my kids and I went exploring down near the Rappahannock River, just a few miles away from Dispatch's HQ. The Rappahannock is a fast-moving and rocky river, lots of boulders and large rocks that create a plethora of semi-permanent pools and puddles of various sizes. In many ways, they remind me of tidal pools. Many are found in depressions in the boulders, measuring just a foot or so in diameter and not much deeper. Cut off from the main river, unless it's running high, primarily fed by rainwater instead of the tides. But despite that, they're full of life. Insects, tadpoles, even plants abound in these small pools. In one of these small pools, some movement caught my eye. 
Now, at first I thought it was just a piece of fishing line. About eight inches long and looking like a thick hair, it was waving around even though there was no current where it was, and it appeared to be tangled in some of the aquatic vegetation. But as I watched, it untangled and began moving around the pool. My 15-year-old literally googled hair-like worm, and we discovered that what we were seeing was called a horsehair worm. The name horsehair worm comes from an old belief that they were literally horsehairs that had fallen into the water and come to life. Their habit of contorting into knots, like I witnessed, has also led them to being called Gordian worms, a reference to the Greek legend of King Gordius, who tied a complicated knot and decreed that the first person to untie it would be the future ruler of Asia. Tangled masses of these worms can sometimes be found in the spring. Adult horsehair worms hibernate through the winter and then lay millions of eggs in the water after mating in the spring. The life of the microscopic larva is not completely understood, but within 24 hours of hatching, the larva forms a protective covering or cyst on plants near the water. These worms and their larvae are generally considered to be harmless to pets, livestock, and humans, but they are parasites and they're not harmless to insects primarily crickets, grasshoppers, mantids, or other insects that might ingest these cysts when they come to drink. When these cysts are consumed by a suitable host, they dissolve, releasing the juvenile worm. The released worm bores through the gut wall and into the body cavity. There it will spend the next two to three months absorbing nutrients through the host's skin or digesting and absorbing the surrounding tissue. Once mature, the worm acts on the host's brain, driving it to seek out water and drown itself. The worm then leaves the host and enters the water, starting the life cycle over again. I don't know about you, but I find that both disturbing and absolutely fascinating. So many cool things to learn when you go outside and get dirty. And that, my friends, is the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. Please leave a like and subscribe. It doesn't cost you anything, but it helps me out. But if you're enjoying the podcast and want to support future episodes, consider becoming a patron. You can do that by heading over to patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. You can also follow Dispatches from the Forest on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes can be emailed to me at dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. Who knows, you might find something amazing. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.